People Follow People, Not Brands by Graham Brown, Be More Human. So when we are on social media personally, we know that we don't like interacting with brands because brands feel fake. They feel in some way inauthentic. We like interacting with people. We go to social media to interact with people specifically. So when we get followed by a brand, we don't feel that there's any sort of sense of real connection there. So it's important for us now to understand what is happening. This isn't just a a small event in the dynamics of business today. This is a much more larger meta shift that I want to talk about. And it's the shift from the industrial era to the post-industrial era where we are today, really, which is defined by the 2020s, the fourth industrial revolution, the age of the machine, and the subsequent shift towards more human interaction. So let's now go back to the basics. Look at what the reality is with uh, brands and people on social media. I've talked about this before, but just quickly, let's run through the numbers. Microsoft on LinkedIn has 9.3 million followers. And if you go to the Microsoft fan page on LinkedIn, you'll find that their post average, and I'm not joking, between one and two likes. Between one and two likes. You heard that right. I mean, this may have changed since you listened to this podcast episode, but in preparation for this podcast episode, I was checking out some of their most recent posts. This is on the Microsoft official page on LinkedIn, and they're receiving one, two, three likes, and they're using stock photos for their posts. It's branding from 1999. This is 2020, guys. Come on. But it's not just Microsoft. There's a whole bunch of companies out there who have millions of followers on LinkedIn, but they're receiving single-digit likes, or maybe at the most 100. AWS, for example, 2.8 million followers on LinkedIn, 212 likes. SAP, a company which is all about people, 1.8 million followers on LinkedIn, 78 likes. My posts averaged 100 plus likes every post. And these guys, these companies have budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. So what's going on? What's going on is these large corporates are behaving like it's 1999. And one of the reasons for that is there is this whole ecosystem of communications and marketing built around corporates who service corporates. And the physics of their business is based on a formula which was carved out in the last 50 years. And that's the formula for the industrial era based on efficiency. It's the factory model. And a factory can be a lawyer filling out forms or somebody in a factory like me in my student days packing yogurts into cartons. That's the factory model. And it's based on efficiency. Now, when you have a model based on efficiency, that's the physics of the model. And what I mean by the physics of the model, I mean that if you play around with the physics, everything changes. So in our world, for example, there are certain true laws, which if you change, everything changes. So if you change the law of gravity or you change the, the chemical competition, composition of the air and the atmosphere, everything changes. And it's the same with business. If you change the physics of business from efficiency to another rule, then everything changes. So my point is, is that this ecosystem of partners ad agencies, communications agencies, and everything that goes with it isn't the, the way we do business, isn't business. It happens to be a manifestation of that rule of physics. So for example, the reason why we have ad, ad agencies, the reason why we have brands is because of the physics of business. In the same way that the reason we have offices 
isn't because that's how we do business. The reason we have offices is because of the physics of the industrial era. It's more efficient to pull resources in one physical place. An office, it's a silo. You can have a photocopier, you can have a reception, you can have a meeting room. And it makes sense in the industrial era to put all of that in one place, but not today. And what people are doing is they're struggling to understand what is the physics of business today and what is the manifestation of that physics. What I mean by that is take the office as an example. Everybody's saying that work from home is this sort of temporary reprieve in the way we do business until we, quote, get back to normal. The reality is, is that offices aren't businesses. Offices aren't business. They're the manifestation of that law of business. So the fact that we have a business built around the industrial model, which is efficiency, means we have to have offices and departments, right? And in the same way, because the rule of competition is based on efficiency, we also have to have brands and ad agencies. Because you go back to the factory model, it's very simple. I've talked about this in my previous podcast, is that when I was a student working in a factory packing yogurts, I started playing around with the factory line and stayed back after hours once and moved some of the positions of the equipment around to get a more effective, efficient factory line going. And I did it in my own time. I did it without pay, even though I was paid by the hour. And I missed the employee coach home to do this just because I wanted to do it. But my boss who found out about this the next day summoned me into his porter cabin and dismissed me on the spot. And his words were, you're not paid to make things better. Now think about that. That's the factory model of efficiency. Because in the efficiency model, the least efficient part of the whole model is the human being. Because human beings are weirdos. Human beings mess around with stuff. Human beings play with stuff. Human beings take sick days. Human beings you know, don't work 24 hours a day like the machines that they man. So think about that, that when you have a model where the least efficient part of that model, the weakest link in the chain is us, then it makes sense that if you want to expand and communicate your business, you also have these weak links in the business, which are the people in the business. So for example, if you gave a megaphone to your employees to talk about your business, the risk that you run in the efficiency model is that they don't keep on point. They don't talk about the brand. They don't talk about what you want to talk about as the business. So therefore, what happened is, is over time, rather than have these employees as the advocates of the brand, a whole ecosystem emerged where, like the factory model, we effectively eliminated the human beings from the process of communications. And that meant we hired ad agencies and communications agencies to replace employees and become the mouthpiece of the brand. And in many cases, those human beings were replaced by, in, by non-human objects. In, in some cases, Tony the Tiger, for example. They replaced the employees of Kellogg's with this mascot who was a cartoon character. And that's happened all over. And that's been happening for the last 50 years because it's more efficient to hire and simply write checks to an ad agency who can create this inhuman object to embody the characteristic and communications of your brand because you know that that is controllable. You know, for example, that a cartoon tiger will never let you down. A cartoon tiger is not going to turn up hungover to work one day. A cartoon tiger is not going to stick around and play around with the factory line. 
So my point is, is when you understand business through the context of physics of business, i.e. what is the defining law, the defining formula of business, then you understand that everything is now almost like rippling out from that concentric circle of, you know, you're throwing a stone in the pool and that stone is that law and everything else ripples out from that point at which the stone hits the pool. And those ripples are, for example, ad agencies, communications agencies, branding, brands, offices, everything that goes with it. Now, if you change the stone, the fundamental physics of business, you also change the structure of business. Think about how so much of our structure is based around the physics of business, which we currently adopt, i.e. the law of efficiency. Now, a lot of that has come from the Ford factory model of business. Henry Ford, who gave us the automated factory model in the 20th century and revolutionized not just business, but society. He was the in many ways, the grandfather of the industrial model. In his famous quip, you can have any car you want as long as it's black. Very few people actually understand. The reason why Henry Ford said that was not because he was cracking a joke or showing his human side. The reason was is because black paint actually dried faster. So think about it. What happened was Henry Ford created a factory model and that factory model, and he's very much credited with increasing the pay of his employees such that his employees could actually afford to buy cars. Now that is seen somehow as a victory for workers' rights. But I put it to you, it's actually the opposite because what are you actually doing but putting money back into the business, buying a consumer product, which you probably don't actually need? Consider this. If you drive a car today, you probably spend, on average, the, the data shows, on average, you spend six to seven months, six to seven months of your year measured in after-tax income. So to you, you work the first half of the year to get enough after-tax income to afford to buy a car. Now, why do you need that car? And most people will say, to drive to work. Now, why have we allowed that to happen? The reason is, is because of the factory model. Because to get people to buy cars, you have to get them to believe in them. And the way you do that is advertising. Because a car, by nature, is extremely inefficient. Think about it. Most of the time, the car isn't moving. If you buy a car, from the moment you buy it, it depreciates in value. It spends 95% of its time not moving. And when it does, it probably drives with three empty seats. Think about that as an extremely inefficient purchase. And people talk about cars as an investment. Absolutely not. A car is a liability. An investment appreciates in value over time. A car can only depreciate, except in some exceptional circumstances, for example, collector's cars. But those are exceptional circumstances. I'm talking about 99.5% of the automotive market out there, that they are liabilities. So how do you convince a whole generation of people that they need a car when it's an extremely inefficient purchase? You hire an ad agency. And what the ad agency does is effectively makes people feel inadequate about themselves and start questioning themselves and their own identity such that they feel they need to buy a car. They feel incomplete. They feel that they are not worthy enough. They feel that they are in some way not accepted by society and only by owning a car 
and particular brands of cars will they feel they have arrived and therefore they will be accepted by other people. Now, you may think that that's crazy and that's not you, but consider, for example, how powerful advertising is. I've talked about it in my previous podcast about branding, the power of branding and the ad agency. Advertising Age, the magazine, lists the number one most respected advertising campaign of the 20th century as the NWA ad campaign for De Beers Diamonds, the Diamond is Forever campaign. Now, the reason why that has been so successful is because it took a product which was not seen with the value it is today and it created value. Now, obviously, diamonds are expensive, but you have to understand that before diamonds were widely used for engagement and weddings, most people used other forms of gemstones rubies, emeralds, and even family heirlooms like your grandmother's ring, for example. Those were the most popular gifts and wedding presents or wedding rings, not diamonds. So what De Beers was able to do is by hiring NWA, what they were able to do was infiltrate the mindsets of a generation and implant the idea that you had to spend three months of your salary on the woman to be worthy. And that only works if you get people to doubt themselves. That only works if you get people to buy into that story. Because before that, people were happy just buying cheap gemstones or even just family heirlooms. But they managed to infiltrate and co-opt, hijack, if you will, popular culture. They hijacked popular culture and they implanted this idea in people through various means. And I talk about it in my other podcast, getting people to buy into this story that this is the truth. And that's the power of advertising, because what it does is it takes an existing story and it overwrites it with a new one. And when you're watching TV all the time, when you're consuming the carousel of media images constantly paraded in front of you, it's hard not to believe in those stories and not to absorb them in a very passive way. That is the power of advertising. So if you think about it, what advertising has done is it has has enabled that factory model to in many ways undermine the inefficient aspects of the business, which is we know as individuals that the car is a pretty crappy purchase and we shouldn't really be spending all that money on cars but yet they've infiltrated our mindsets and got us to believe in this story. And slowly it's, yeah, absolutely, slowly it's unraveling today. Not because of the pandemic per se, not because people are realizing that, oh, actually, I don't need to spend all these thousands of dollars and work half the year just to be able to work half the year. I don't need to do that. I can hire Grab or Uber for 10 bucks. And I don't care if it's a BMW or a Mercedes. Actually, if it's a Mazda 3, I'm happy with that because I'm only using this car for 12 minutes. And it's slowly unraveling because now we have these options. We're having these options now which are making us question the model. Ride sharing, work from home. All of that is making us question this model. Actually, I don't need a car. Why do I need a car in the first place? Well, you had to go to the office. Why did I need to go to the office? Well, because it was an effective, efficient way of us pulling everybody together into one place. Why did we need to do that? Well, because the business is all about efficiency. And why do we need to do that? Well, because this is the industrial era and it's how we compete. That's the central stone in the concentric circles in the pool. You change that, everything else changes. So now, if the business is not about competing on efficiency, how does that change? Well, think about it. We have, for the last, let's say, 80 years, not only competed for and competed on efficiency, But we have also built a whole society around it. The tail wags the dog. 
think about how much of our society is built around the fact that we have to go to a place of work because that was the most efficient way for that business to compete and pool its resources. That isn't just now about buying cars and therefore needing advertising agencies to convince us to buy cars, but everything else that goes with that commuting, the whole sort of nine to five mindset, everything. And not just that, but also education. Because to get people to play that game, you had to get people who were compliant in the game. What you didn't want in that factory model is the weirdos who would play around with it, like me. You didn't want those in there. Because those were the guys that would say, actually, why do I need a car? You don't want that because if you have people playing around with the factory line, you have all these kind of inefficiencies and the factory line breaks down. So to ensure, to filter out the weirdos, ensure that you've got the people who were compliant in that game, you also needed to build a filter, a system which served up the best and the most compliant, smart, compliant people. Now, how do you get smart, compliant people? You build a system where you're constantly testing them to see if that they will play by the rules and they will sacrifice everything to play by the rules. And there is no bigger way of doing that than finding families who are willing to spend thousands of dollars on brand universities and education to ensure that their kids get the best jobs. And there are a lot of families out there who do that, who would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to ensure that their son or their daughter gets a good degree, a good qualification at the end of it, and therefore a good job and a good career. Because what's going to happen is, is when little Johnny graduates from medical school or little Teresa graduates from MBA, and the family has invested $100,000 in that kid's education, what you don't want, and what's not going to happen, is that child turning around and saying, yeah, I think I'm going to be an artist. I think I'm going to travel the world. I think I'm going to just do stuff. You don't want that. And so, What's happened is, is you've built a system where that family has committed that child already for 20 years and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. The chances of them doing that is extremely small. So already at the end of it, they are indebted. Literally, in many cases, you think about how much debt medical students graduate with. But even bigger than that, look at the word debt. Interestingly, and I'm sure my German friends can pull me up on this, that I believe in German, the word debt is Schulden. I didn't pronounce that right. I apologize. But it actually means guilt, as in to feel guilty. Think about that. Debt, guilt. It's the etymology of the word that by encouraging this debt to society, you have them emotionally blackmailed effectively to ensure that they do not play around with the factory line. And therefore, you've built a whole model around the physics of business of efficiency. You've successfully end-to-end trained kids from the moment they enter the education system to the moment they enter the workplace to feel guilty about breaking the rules. We know that. We've all been in school and questioned stuff. Why is it like that? You know, look at a test. In the most basic example, taking a test. Now, if I sat next to you in the exam room and I leant over and said, what have you got for answer 22? This is what I think. Both of us would be thrown out, right? But if you say to any business person today not to cooperate, they won't survive. But we know that that system is broken. But the problem is, is that the people who are pushing the buttons on it are the same ones who are the products of the system. 
They're the ones who are compliant and don't want to change it from the inside. They're the ones that if they do change it, the factory manager is going to pull them up and dismiss them. You're not paid to make things better. We have 80 years of a business model based on efficiency. And in that model, the least efficient part of the business is the human being. It's why in the factory, the human is the weakest link. It's why in marketing and advertising, the human is the weakest link. And we replace them with the byproducts, effectively, of the industrial area. Ad agencies, branding, mascots, influencers, celebrities. These are all proxies for the real human beings that exist inside the organization. Think, for example, about that clown, Ronald McDonald. Now, in Hamburger University, or whatever it's called, they teach you the customer is always right. And unquestioningly, we have accepted that as the mantra of good service. The customer is always right. However, they won't teach you that at Starbucks. The reason is, it's because the customer is always right actually means the employee is always wrong. Because if the customer was to spill his Coke on the counter deliberately, the employee has to clean it up. And this is, is what manifests on YouTube. There are many horror stories of customer-employee interactions at McDonald's available for you to see. The reason is, is because the customer is always right. And the customer isn't always right. And it should be the discretion of the employee to make a decision. But if you give employees the power to make decisions, you also give them the power to change things and make things better. And it comes back to the model that the least efficient part in the model is the human being. So think about this now. The model is based on efficiency. So we need offices to pull resources. We need ad agencies and marketing agencies and PR agencies to communicate as proxies for the human beings inside the business. And now we have these customer service policies which effectively disempower and remove the inefficiencies out of the model such that none of the inefficient parts, i.e. the human beings, can make decisions to change it. You know, when uh, McDonald's opened in Moscow, for following perestroika and the opening up of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. Thousands of people applied for jobs at McDonald's. But interestingly, whilst McDonald's was seen as this sort of beacon of democracy, that the McDonald's franchise in Russia found that the potatoes that they used to slice and create fries, French fries, from local farmers with the wrong shape because they didn't fit into the round holes that the McDonald's machines would use to sort potatoes and then slice them. So what they did is they effectively imported all their russet potatoes from America. Think about how ludicrous that is that Russia, a country known for growing potatoes and has the right climate and soil to grow hundreds of millions of potatoes because the McDonald's machines holes were the wrong shape or to put it another way, the potatoes were the wrong shape. They imported them all from America. And it's interesting that when you actually look at the factory model, what we actually learn is the efficiencies aren't, for example, the human beings, the efficiencies, once you eliminate them from the process, they don't actually go away. They just get supplanted somewhere else. 
pollution, for example, by cutting corners on your process and dumping chemicals in the river, you may be saving money, but effectively you're shifting cost onto somebody else, whether that's the family downstream or the farmers. In the same way, it's more efficient to use DDT on your crops, but all you're doing is you're shifting the cost onto another generation. People who will suffer as a result of the damage to their DNA, for example. And it's similar with the efficiency model with customer service. If you remove the efficiencies of the model by disempowering the humans, you also shift that cost somewhere else. What you do is you create a low-skilled, low-educated market of employees who have poor, maybe, engagement with the brand and therefore aren't willing to promote the brand in any way. So what McDonald's has to do instead of empowering their employees to talk about McDonald's, they hire an ad agency to create a clown. That's the model. If you eliminate efficiencies in one part of the model, you effectively shift them somewhere else. You kick the can down the road rather than deal with the problem. That's the whole efficiency model. We've reached, however, a point, a Rubicon we've crossed. We've crossed the threshold. We've moved from the era of efficiency to a new era. So what is that era? So we've reached peak efficiency, i.e. the gains to be had in becoming more efficient are smaller than the gains to be had elsewhere. To understand this, look at how business works. In business, you have two functions, effectively leadership and management. Leadership disrupts, managers optimize. Leadership gives us new paradigms, new stories. Managers simply improve the process and manage it. That's what they do. Caretake it. The old adage, if you gave the problem to a manager, he would build a taller tower to reach the moon. To reach the moon, you don't need managers. You, de- you need a leader, like a JFK, for example, who can disrupt our mindsets and take us not necessarily where we want to go, but where we need to go. Take us out of our comfort zone. And what's going to happen in business is these two functions will diverge, leadership and management. Because management effectively, if it's an optimization game, if it's about recognizing a pattern and executing patterns and workflows based on those patterns, let's give it to a machine. Let's give it to AI that can do it a lot better and faster and more efficiently. So what's going to happen is, is managers are going to be replaced by AI and the value is going to shift in this K-shaped economy. Think of it as a K, letter K. You're going to see value increase and value decrease. And value is going to shift from the managers to the leaders because managers are going to be replaced by AI. Anybody whose job is effectively spreadsheet-based, and spreadsheets can mean, for example, looking at case law or tax codes or dealing with process or workflows, that's the factory model. AI will do that better. We won't need humans to do that. Instead, we need humans who can tell stories and empathize and connect the inefficient stuff. So after peak efficiency, we're entering the era of authenticity. And you look at that word authentic from the Greek, A-U, means to feel, to perceive. It's the same root of the word audio, authority, audience. And that's what's happening is in the age of authenticity, everything can be faked. 
social media can be faked. Blog posts can be faked. Music can be faked. Customer service is fake. Most of the time you're speaking to a chat bot. And when you're speaking to somebody else, it's difficult to discern whether they're a chatbot or not. That's like the reverse Turing test. In this world, the premium of being inefficient will be higher than ever. And that means, what it, what it basically means is that if you can prove that you're not a machine, you become more valuable. Because we still crave human connection. Not connectivity, it's different. Connection. We are analog by design. Think, for example, of the 50,000 years of human history. The first 40,000 years, we didn't even know what went on. And it's only very recently in that time scale have we even been using digital tools. So it's 20 years out of 50,000 it's less than 0.1% of our human history. 99.9x percent of our human history has been analog and offline and evolved around that. And our physical frames are extremely slow to evolve. We're still effectively the same human beings we were 50,000 years ago biologically, even though socially, culturally, we've evolved phenomenally. Biologically, our digestive system is still the same digestive system as the, the hunter foragers and the fruit and berry collectors, scavengers for 50,000 years ago. We're not used to that modern diet. So physically, we're still very much geared towards offline contact and human connection. When human babies are born... They are flooded with the hormone oxytocin, which is often called the love hormone, the bonding hormone. It, it motivates the baby to grasp, to connect, to bond. And this is the same with mothers as well. It's fundamental to our design. We are social by design. In our brains, there are neurons called mirror neurons, which fire when we see people doing the same things as us. We are hardwired to connect with other human beings. So what does that mean? It means that 20 years of digital online ain't going to change that. Because to change that, we have to change our brains and our fundamental physical form. In the same way, it would mean that, for example, we could survive eating Pop-Tarts and Twinkies for food and pills. We can't. We could just take caffeine pills every day, but why do people insist on going to places like Starbucks? It's because we still want analog offline connection. Not connectivity, which is very different. We are awash with connectivity, but there is a drought of human connection right now. This is the age of authenticity. So if you can connect with people in a real human, authentic way. You are more valuable than ever. So think about that, for example, in the context of a doctor, in the age of efficiency. Well, the model was laid out for you. Your family invests $100,000 for you to go to medical school. You work some crazy hours in residence to learn everything. And then you come out at the end of it and you spend more than 50% of your time filling out paperwork. And then when you're not doing paperwork, you're spending a lot of time looking at patterns, for example, disease scans. And then maybe the remaining 10% of the time, you're actually talking to humans, other doctors, patients, nurses. That's all going to change. That first 90% is going to be done by AI because it already can do it a lot better. So what does it leave? It leaves that 10%. If you can now master that 10%, you will become extremely valuable. There's a great book. I've mentioned it a few times in my podcast, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, who is a neurosurgeon. 
talking about the human aspects of medicine and how he found that as he trained, he became less and less human to the point where, for example, they were cutting up cadavers, you know, dead bodies and sawing off hacksaw, cutting off the lid of somebody's skull. Now, when you go through that process, you have to dehumanize the patients just to deal with it. But more than ever, we're now going to need healthcare professionals who have these human skills because everything else will be done by machine. So we will need healthcare professionals who can empathize and connect and tell stories. I'm not talking about once upon a time, but stories in the context of business, which I talk about in my human communication playbook. Storytelling is everything from service to painting a picture of the future. Leadership, human, authentic, vulnerable. That's the era of change from efficiency to authenticity. And go back to the whole idea of the physics of business. If you change the physics of business, you also change all the structures. So offices, cars, ad agencies, PR agencies were not business, but the byproducts of that physics of business. So if you change the physics of business, you also change the byproducts. In the era of authenticity, we won't need offices. We won't need cars. Or to the extent that we won't see cars as means of transport. That's why the most valuable auto brand in the world today is Tesla. And the reason people are buying Tesla is because they're not buying it for transport. They're buying it as a statement about themselves. In the same way, if you go back 150 years, people got around using horses. But the value of a horse as transport today is worthless. But interestingly, the horse still holds similar value financially. The cost of a horse in 1865 in the era of the American Civil War and 150 years later today is about the same. A horse costs about $2,000 in the US, but people don't buy them for transport. They buy them for leisure. So my point is, is that in the era of authenticity, the age of authenticity, everything will change. Offices will disappear or they won't become these silos of resources that they once were. Offices will become like hotels for business, places to check in and for meetings. They won't become the de facto go-to place for work because work isn't a place we go to. Work is what we do in the age of authenticity. Similarly, the way we communicate will change. So take that second concentric circle, which is ad agencies and PR agencies. They're going to disappear or adapt because the reason we needed them was because of efficiency. We needed somebody to take out and create a proxy of the business for our human communication. We needed a proxy rather than the employees. But now look at the data. Employees are your most effective advocates. We need to stop chasing influencers and give our people a voice. And the reason organizations aren't giving their people a voice is because they're scared. And the reason they're scared is because they've grown up with this whole industrial model and they've got people who are pushing the buttons who are saying, you're not paid to make anything better around here. But if you look around the business today, you look around Uber or any platform any model from the Alibabas to the AWSs, these were all set up and run by weirdos. The people who played around with the factory line, they're the ones who create value today. And the whole model and the valuations of those models change. Think, for example, Instagram, sold for a billion dollars when it only had 13 employees and it didn't own anything. Physically, in the context of the era of efficiency, it would have been worthless. 
So communication is probably ripe for change in this decade, expedited by the exogenous shocks, pandemic, industrial era, the fourth industrial revolution, work from home. These are communications problems. And the real change we're going to see in the next 10 years isn't probably what a lot of people think. We're not going to see the biggest changes, the biggest disruptions through digitalization. We're going to see it in digital transformation. And what I mean by that is digitalization is the adoption of digital. It's do digital. It's a management play. It's about which technologies and which processes should we use. Whereas digital transformation is a leadership play. Instead of do digital, digital transformation is be digital, which is fundamentally different. Because in the digital era, it's not about efficiency because machines have got all that locked down. Machines will look after it. And your machines and my machines as competitors are the same. We're using the same AI. We're using the same delivery drivers. And we're also sourcing all our products from the same hawker stands. So all we're competing for now are the people and the stories. Think about that when we go back to Microsoft. 9.3 million followers on LinkedIn, but their CEO, Satya Nadella, regularly gets thousands of likes on his posts. Even Tony Fernandez, CEO of AirAsia, and he's, he's actually left LinkedIn now but he'll receive thousands of likes and hundreds of thousands of views, a lot more than AirAsia itself. Even though AirAsia on LinkedIn, I believe is about 400,000 followers. What we need is we need change makers inside of organizations, those who are willing to stay behind, not because they're going to get paid extra hours, but because they want to change stuff and make things better. And they're willing to take risks and play around with the factory line. We need those people not to focus on official brand because official is dead. Brand is just one narrative, just one bird in the tree. This is the end of official. You can no longer rely on telling one story and telling it in a big way like we did in the era of efficiency. That was very efficient. That was monolithic brand templates, brand storytelling. That's all gone. What we need are those change makers who could activate inside the organization and give their people a voice. If 1% of Microsoft employees had a voice, that would be 1,500 storytellers on LinkedIn. Each one of them know 150 people. That means they could authentically reach 22.5 million. And yet, because Microsoft decides that, that they decide that they're still operating from a physics of business based on efficiency rather than authenticity, because of that, they silence all of those employees because they're scared, because the employees are inefficient. The employees are, like in the McDonald's model, the least controllable part of the factory process. So the employee is always right, is not the mantra of an efficient business. So in that case, they can't give their employees a voice and rather they would still spend it on ad agencies or in the case of LinkedIn, they would use stock photos to push out their messages. But if only 1% of Microsoft employees communicated in an authentic way, they could build a storytelling organization. And that's all we need in the era of efficiency. We needed brands. In the age of authenticity, we need people. People follow people, not brands. And the age of official communications is over. So to embrace the unofficial, we have to understand when people say, how do we be more human? As a company, 
People are asking now, how do we humanize our brand? You got to understand that the brand is the least human part of the organization. The brand cannot be humanized. Because you have a brand, you cannot have humans. So if you want to humanize your company, you have to first reduce the brand. And stop investing in brand and stop believing in the narrative of branding. Because the story of branding is also the story of disempowering human beings. Because that very word itself is a proxy. It replaces real human contact with logos, mascots, and agencies. But the cost of uncaring is going to be higher than ever. And in time, this will balance out. In time, the companies that get it will rise to the surface. I believe if Microsoft embraced unofficial, reduced branding, stopped branding, at least reduced its focus and its spend on branding, and started increasing its focus on building a storytelling organization, it would crush everything that traditionally falls under the umbrella of communication, recruitment, employee engagement, PR, advertising, all of it. It would crush it. It would reach 22 and a half million people authentically. But that ain't going to happen when the people at the helm, pushing the button, running the factory lines, are also the people who are most vested in the model. We need weirdos. We need real humans to make change. So when people talk about being customer-centric, when people talk about humanizing brands, when people talk about being more human or putting their people first, I guarantee that 90% of those conversations are just platitudes. They're just paying lip service to the idea like the customer is always right. But let's see the brands, the companies, I should say, who are brave enough to give their people a voice, truly. Let's see those companies stand up and stop branding because that's the real key to authenticity in the era of the machine. And that, not through customer service mantras, not through logos, not through giving it to your ad agency and creating a campaign. That's how you be more human.